Let us pray. Lord, now may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When a baby is born, uh, all the nutrition they really need is found in their mother's milk. The child can grow healthy, it can grow and develop as it should exclusively on a diet of mother's milk, and this goes on for several months. But eventually there comes a time when a child has to move on to other things like strained vegetables. You all know why they call them strained vegetables, don't you? It's because it's a strain to get them in their mouth, and it's a strain to get them to keep it in their mouth. Uh, Then, of course, it's not long before they move on from mother's milk to strange vegetables, eating mashed potatoes and then corn and hot dogs and corn dogs and Happy Meals and pizza. And though it only lasts for a few months, though, there is that period of time when a baby can thrive on nothing else but a diet of pure milk. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you know the difference between a Christian and a baby? Well, even though the baby outgrows its need for pure milk, a believer, a Christian, never does. There are some basic elements of our spiritual nurture, and Peter here in our text today calls it pure spiritual milk. That all baby Christians need to eat and feast on as they continue to grow spiritually, and it's stuff that you never give up your entire life. Now, occasionally I've had people in church (coughs) tell me, You know, Pastor, I really want to get into the meat of the Word. I want to get past all that baby food and into the really deep stuff. Now, I tell you, there's nothing wrong with wanting to go deeper in your relationship with Jesus uh, in the fact that that is the aim of being a Christian, of a Christ follower. But, But I want you to realize that for you to grow deeper in your faith, you still need to deal with the pure spiritual milk on a daily basis. Nancy and I used to live in Hong Kong, and you could drive around sometimes really early in the morning, and you'd see a gathering of elderly people in the park doing Tai Chi. You all know what that is. And uh, they have Tai Chi classes, I think, at our our rec center. Uh, But I heard a guy tell me one time, he said that mastering Tai Chi is a matter of mastering only seven basic movements. And he said, but that's the reason why a lot of people don't want to sign up for it, because they have a hard time believing that they could possibly become Tai Chi experts by mastering only a few simple moves. Now, most things are complex that way. I mean, for example, many people are, in, are intimidated by computers. I had an email from one of our members this last week who bought a brand new computer and was just trying to figure out how everything worked. But, you know, the fact is most computer programs are quite easy to solve. And <coughs> actually, programming is quite simple once you understand and master the basics. You know, for example, there was a uh, local school system whose computer network had gone down, so they called in the local uh, computer technician to fix the problem. And he uh, quickly surveyed the situation and then shut down the entire network server, then reached his hand uh, behind the computer and did something, then turned the server back on, and the problem was fixed. Well, the school administrator asked him what he'd done, and he was absolutely honest with her. He said, I I jiggled the cable. And then he gave her a bill for $125. 
and she was taken, taken aback by that. And she said, you, how can you charge $125 when all you did was jiggle a cable? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and he said, uh, because I knew which cable to jiggle. Now, for three weeks now, we've been talking about mastering the art of obedience. Uh, mastering the Christian life is the mastering uh, is like mastering other things. You've got to go back to the basics and you do them again and again and again. Now, I coached basketball for almost 20 years. And, and there's a few things that we did every last single day in practice. I don't care whether they were college kids or whether they were high school juniors and seniors. Well, we practiced them every day. I mean, every day we would make, we, before we did anything else, we'd make 50 layups in a row. And sometimes the guys were like, why can't we get out and practice half-court shots? Well, how many half-court shots did you shoot in a game? Maybe four. <laughs> how many layups do you think you're going to get in a game? A lot. You've got to learn how to do that. Every day you've got to learn how to block out. You've got to learn how to pass the ball. You've got to learn how to screen for other people. It's the basics over and over and over again. That's why Peter says in verse 2, Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now, Peter wasn't writing these words to just brand new believers only. Uh, his letter was written to all kinds of Christians at every level of maturity. And Peter's saying that no matter how long you've been a believer, whether it's been for six years or 16 years or 36 years or 56 years or 66 or 106, the only way to grow in your salvation the only way to become more spiritual is to master the art of obedience, <coughs> and that's through pure spiritual milk. Now, anytime you read the scripture, you probably ought to should be asking yourself, what is this, quote, pure spiritual milk? Now, most commentaries that I read say that Peter's referring to the very things that nourish a Christian's spiritual growth. They're kind of like the basics, if you will, the basic elements that contribute to your spiritual growth. And it's kind of like if you'll make these things a part of your daily life, if you'll master four simple little ideas, you will develop an appetite for obedience and you'll find that you are getting good at being good. So what are these? Well, the first one, the first basic is reading your Bible. It's just that simple. Peter ends up with these words, in verses 24 and 25, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, I, I used to believe, I used to think that good Christians read their Bible. But actually, I think I had that backwards. It really works like this. People who read the Bible become good Christians. See, the Bible is God's word to us. Uh, sometimes people, every, every once in a while, I'll mention this sermon, well, when God spoke to me or when God said this to me, and people go, well, God never talks to me. Why does he only talk to you, just because you're a pastor? No. Well, God also speaks to you very clearly here. I just read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to his people through the prophets, but now in these last days, he speaks to us through his son, through his word. See, the Bible is God's word to us. Um, it tells us how to live. It challenges us. It motivates us. It comforts us. It encourages us. It inspires us. And when we read the Bible, we become changed by its influence if, and this is a really big if, we read it with a heart that is willing to be taught. 
Now I say this because I know a fair number of people who know a whole lot of Bible passages, but they only use it as ammunition against other people. They miss the point of reading the Bible. Uh, but see, we don't read this to find out what's wrong with other people so we can blast them with it. We read it to find out what's wrong with us. Now, when you read the Bible, you're just reading it with an attitude that says, God, what are you saying to me here? Uh, what, do I need to, what do I need to do? What do I need to change about the way I think or act? I mean, is there a sin here that I ought to confess or a promise that I need to claim? Is there an action that I need to avoid? Is there a command I need to obey? Is there any example here that I need to follow? So one key element of pure spiritual milk is the Word of God. And we're never, ever going to outgrow our need for it on a daily basis. Here's the second basic. It's declaring God's praises. Now, generally speaking, we come together once a week to worship God. Uh, we sing uh, hymns. We sing songs of praise. We offer our prayers. We receive communion. Uh, and these are all very important parts of a believer's life. But the praise and worship that takes place just in the confines here of St. Mark's and Mineral Wells uh, today should only be a very small part of the role that praise makes in your daily life. Now, the Bible tells us in, in verse 9, you are people belonging to God that you may, what? Declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful or marvelous light. See, we're created to praise God, and, and we are to praise him every day. Now, I've heard before that there are some people when they wake up in the morning, they say, Oh, God, it's morning. And there are other people who wake up and say, Oh, God, thank you. It's another morning. Praise him every day. And the more you praise him, the easier it is to master the art of obedience. Now, the question is, how do you declare his praises? And it'd be pretty simple. I say, okay, folks, when you leave, start, pray, start declaring his praises. You might go, yeah, that's easy. Now, what am I supposed to do? Well, I'm going to tell you. Here's at least two ways. One of them is to tell it to God. I mean, say to God the things that you know are true about him, that you know that are true about him. I mean, God, you are so wonderful. Uh, you are full of love. You're full of forgiveness. You're full of mercy. Uh, you're the source of truth. You're, you're light. You are all that is good. You are faithful even when I am unfaithful. You forgive me even though I, I don't deserve that forgiveness. Uh, you answer my prayer, even though sometimes I don't respond to your call. You are my only hope. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Pick up a hymnal. A mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. There you go. You get a few more. <clears throat> now, I want you to know something. God already knows those things to be true. When you declare God's praises, you are not giving him any new information he's never heard before. You are not boosting his self-esteem. And you're not buttering him up so that you can try to sneak one past him in a little while, like you did with your mom or dad or me with my grandma or grandpa. And this is what you are doing, however. When you declare praise to God, you strengthen your connection in your relationship to him. Now, you know the difference between an acquaintance and a friend? The, the difference between acquaintances and people who are in love is that an acquaintance... You kind of talk about surface level things like what's the weather like? 
You talk about sports. You talk about politics. But when you're in love with someone, you eventually talk to that person about how you feel. And guess what? You know what? The more you talk to another person about your feelings, your hopes, your dreams, or whatever, the stronger that relationship becomes. Now, there's an old joke, maybe some of you have heard this before, about a couple who have been married a really long time, and the wife said, why don't you tell me that you love me anymore? And the husband said, well, the day I married you, I told you I loved you, and until I take it back, it's still in effect. Now, many people think that their relationship with God is kind of the same way. They're, they think, well, certainly God knows how I feel. He knows what's in my heart. Well, to that I would say, tell him anyway. In fact, God, God commands us to tell him, tell him. So when you declare his praises, you strengthen the connection between you and God. Now, the second way is to tell it to other people. Now, if you're a witness to somebody else, try to tell them about Jesus, you probably know that some people immediately, when you bring up the name of Jesus, put up a wall. They are raising their resistance as soon as you mention a personal relationship to Jesus. Do you know why that is? It's because they think that they are just about ready to be preached to or preached at. They're afraid that somehow, because they've met a few other Christians who are, are going to dump a load of guilt on them, they're going to be pressured into doing something that they're afraid to do. Now, I want you to think about it this way. Let's say that you are um, shopping this next week, and you run into an acquaintance, and this lady says to you, Man, i got something to tell you. Uh, what, what kind of vacuum cleaner do you have in your house? Because I know your house is particularly dirty. Uh, but I've got a vacuum cleaner that you need to buy, you need to buy it today. Your house is so filthy, and even though I've never been to it, I can tell just by looking at you, the house is filthy. Uh, you've got dirt that you don't even know about. You're sleeping in dirt, you're breathing in dirt, you're rolling in dirt. You need this vacuum cleaner right now. I mean, stop what you're doing, write me out a check right now. Now is the time, now is the day for a brand new vacuum cleaner. Now, how would you respond in that situation? Do the words take a hike come to mind? Or something similar. Now, on the other hand, um, what if you run into an acquaintance in town and they say, hey, guess what? I'm taking the afternoon off today to go on a picnic with my kids. You know, and the reason I can do that, oh, thank you, Jesus, because all my, my housework is done. You see, I bought a brand new vacuum cleaner. And it's the best vacuum cleaner I have ever seen. I mean, it, it cleans the carpets. It cleans the wood floor. It cleans the tile. It cleans the drapes. The block, it even cleans my kids. I mean, this is the most wonderful vacuum that I have ever had. And even with my small little income, I was able to afford it. I just don't know how I could ever get along without it. Now, how would you respond to that? Probably a little bit more open. Like, what kind of a vacuum cleaner that doesn't cost much would actually clean my kids? Or your husband who's gathering dust in the recliner? Now, unfortunately, much of what has been said under the category of what we might call Christian witnessing is really just kind of a religious form of high-pressure salesmanship. And the fact is... God has never asked any of you, me included, to be a salesman. All he's asked you to do is to declare his praises, to tell other people how good he is. Tell other people what he's done for you. Tell them how much he means to you. Now, I've discovered in my life that it's a whole lot easier to talk about God when I'm really talking to them about God.
It's when I kind of slip into the vacuum cleaner salesman mode that people kind of start putting up walls. So I really don't try to do that anymore. I mean, sharing your faith is much more effective when you just emphasize how good God is rather than how evil, wicked, and bad, and nasty they are. That's what it means to declare his praises. And as you declare God's praises to him and you do to other people, you discover that your appetite for obedience increases dramatically. Well, there's a third way here. And the third basic is identifying with God's people. Verses 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but as a Christ follower, as a believer, you are part of one of the most important groups of people on this earth. Not because you're better than anyone else, but because you have the most important job and you're doing it. I want you to think for a moment how important Christians really are in this world. I mean, think of all the hospitals that there are in this world that are there in the name of Jesus. I mean, think of all the the colleges, the seminaries, the schools, the daycare centers that all operate in the name of Jesus. I mean, think about the homeless shelters and the orphanages and the nursing homes and the soup kitchens that operate in the name of Jesus. I mean, think of all the churches that are scattered, you know, not only through Texas, but worldwide. You know, if every last one of those Christian organizations were to disappear overnight, life on earth would become almost unbearable. I mean, every time there's a tragedy in this world, I'm always wondering where some of these Islamic nations are coming to bring aid. I don't know that I've ever seen some of these countries ever have, you know, orphanages and stuff like that. It always tends to be what the people in America who respond, and particularly those who are Christ followers who respond because they know that they're asked to do it. See, if all the good things that were being done in this world in the name of Jesus were to stop suddenly, I think the world would spin into even deeper chaos than it is. We are kind of the glue that actually seems to be holding everything together today. And even though the world doesn't always recognize it, God's people play a a crucial role in society. And when you align yourself with other followers, you align yourself with people who are not only precious to God, but they are essential to the well-being of all the people around us. Now, i got to tell you, there are some people who don't feel that way about the church. They don't feel that way about Christians. And I don't mean just non-believers. I don't think it's just non-believers who badmouth the church. Sadly, I know way too many Christians who have nothing but negative thoughts about the church and sometimes their own church. This past week, I read an editorial in an evangelical publication in which the editor wrote, quote, I'm ashamed of what the church has become, end of quote. Now, when I read that, I thought, I'm not even going to read the rest of that dumb article. Because, first of all, that might be his opinion, but it's not God's opinion. God is not ashamed of his church. I mean, God is not ashamed of his bride. He doesn't want us to be ashamed of his church either. And by identifying with God's people, we're recognizing that we belong to a group of people who are precious to God. And we belong to a group of people who have a vital mission in this world. And when you focus your attention on the fact that you're a part of God's people, a people with a purpose you find that your appetite 
for obedience grows. Here's the fourth one. Avoiding simple situations. I know you've probably heard this old joke. There was a uh, joke about a guy who goes to his doctor. He says, Doc, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, stop doing that. You know, that's bad medical advice. But you know something? It's good spiritual advice. I mean, if you find that you're doing certain things or being with certain people or putting yourself in a certain environment causes you to sin, then avoid those situations. When I was on my vicarage, the um, pastor was gone, so there are a few people who took the opportunity to come and talk to me, I guess. But this one guy came in and he said, I, I need to tell you, I'm doing cocaine. I said, really? I said, where are you doing it? He said, what do you mean? I said, where are you doing it? I'm just curious. He looked at me and said, are you doing it here in church? He goes, go, gosh, no, I'd never, I'd never do that here in church. I mean, no. I said, you doing it at home? Oh, gosh, no, my wife would kill me if she knew I was doing this. Do you do it at work? He goes, oh, no. He said, you know I work at Hanford Nuclear Power Plant, don't you? I said, oh, man, that's just scary. So I could see that thing out my window. And I said, so where do you do it? He said, well, there's this one bar over in Pasco. I said, okay, I, I, I take care of your problem. He said, really? I said, yeah, don't ever go to that bar again. And he looked at me and said, what? I said, don't ever go to that bar again. He said, what do you mean? I said, don't ever go back to that bar again. I don't know if George Bush had been around. I said, read my lips. Don't ever go back to that bar again. And he just kind of looked at me. And I said, look, that's the only place you're doing it, right? Yes. Don't ever go back there. <laughs> uh, you know, isn't what Peter says in verse, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers as well to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. If there's something or someone or someplace that causes you to sin, don't go back there. Read my lips. As a little kid, do you ever remember? Maybe some of you got grandkids now coming home. <clears throat> You know, you'd go into the kitchen while your mom was cooking supper and you'd ask for a snack. What would she typically say to you? No. You'll spoil your appetite. And it does make sense. If you eat a bag of potato chips a half an hour before mealtime, it makes you less hungry uh, when it comes time to eat. In the same way, there are certain things in your life that will spoil your appetite for obedience. And the best thing is to do what? Cut them out of your diet. Avoid them at all costs. There may be some things in life that you just need to eliminate, not because they're necessarily sinful in themselves, but because they lead you into sin. I mean, if you find that uh, listening to a certain kind of music or watching certain television programs or being with certain people tends to provoke you to sin, then avoid them at all costs. Don't spoil your appetite. Now, in order for us to get good at being good, we need to find our nurture in pure spiritual milk. We need to excel in the basics. See, we're never going to outgrow these fundamentals of the Christian life. Reading our Bible. Declaring the praises of God. Identifying with God's people. And avoiding sinful situations. And I can tell you something, friends, to the extent that you master those four simple little principles, your appetite for obedience will grow 
and you will be able to walk the talk according to the will of God. May he grant that for the sake of his son Jesus. Amen.